This is an ABC podcast. A Bitcoin, it just seems like a scam. It's been estimated Bitcoin has a carbon footprint comparable to that of New Zealand. Now ransom payments are being asked for and made in Bitcoin. So is it a scam? Is it boiling the oceans and killing the polar bears? Is it the payment of choice for international criminals? Or is it a genius financial revolution democratising money and enabling financial sovereignty for the future? I'm Edwina Stott, and today on Future Tense, we're going to unpick some of the biggest headlines in Bitcoin to get to the bottom of what's really going on and what it means for our future. Bitcoin makes the news most days in some form or another. But the most surprising story recently... That is why next week I will send to Congress a bill that will make Bitcoin a legal tender in El Salvador. From September 7th, Bitcoin will be legal tender in El Salvador. They're the first country in the world to do this. Uh, Now, this was kind of out of the blue. We didn't expect it to happen. El Salvador isn't particularly known for being a particularly Bitcoinized nation or anything like that. Nick Carter is a general partner at Castle Island Ventures, which is a blockchain-focused venture fund in the U.S. He's a big Bitcoiner. Uh, Yes, I am very much pro-Bitcoin. You know, there's no question about that. But even he was caught off guard by El Salvador's decision. There has been this pilot experiment in a town called El Zante on the coast of El Salvador, which is this kind of touristy surf town where... Through grants and some activism, much of the town had been converted to transacting on Bitcoin. So a sort of local Bitcoin standard had emerged in this town. But this wasn't like a widespread thing in the country of El Salvador by any means. It was kind of a surprise to us all when the president announced he was going to pass a bill in his parliament making Bitcoin legal tender. To understand why President Bukele decided to open the economy up to Bitcoin, we need to understand a little more about it. Francis Coppola is a financial writer. A lot of the people in the crypto community regard me as this notorious no-coiner who hates Bitcoin, and it's actually not true. And I surprised quite a lot of them by writing a piece in which I gave a cautious welcome to what was going on in El Salvador. So El Salvador has what's called a dollarized economy. Now, what that means, what a a dollarized economy is, is one which uses the US dollar as its own currency, but it's not part of the United States or one of its territories. So although it uses the US dollar, it doesn't come under US tax policy. It doesn't come under US monetary policy. The Fed has no responsibility for making sure that it has enough dollars. So it has to earn or buy or borrow the dollars that it uses domestically has to obtain them from outside the US. And that means that um, really it needs to export more than it imports, or if it doesn't, then that difference has to be made up in some other way. In El Salvador's case, it's made up with remittances from, from people working overseas. Now, the problem with all of this is that when you're borrowing somebody else's money, you have to service it in that currency. And that kind of means you either have to keep borrowing or you have to earn it. You can't create it in the way that modern economies do when they issue their own currencies. And that's a real constraint for El Salvador. So where does Bitcoin come into all of this? Well, what they seem to be doing 
is launching Bitcoin as a parallel currency to the US dollar. They're not at the moment proposing to replace the US dollar with Bitcoin. So really, it's in a way increasing people's options for what currency they use. And to the extent they're able to attract Bitcoin into the country as well as dollars, if it is in addition to dollars rather than replacing it, it could actually increase liquidity in the, in the economy a bit, give people a bit more spending power. And opening up to this new currency could also open the country up to new business. Eliminating taxes on Bitcoin capital gains would be one way to attract Bitcoin entrepreneurs to the country and uh, attract capital and investment to the country. And then lastly, the USA actually threatened El Salvador with sanctions not too long ago after Bukele fired some members of the judiciary. And so this is one less discussed potential upside, which would be diversifying El Salvador away from just their dependence on the dollar, becoming less of a vassal state and becoming more independent, so potentially de-dollarizing. But if that is part of the justification, we certainly haven't heard it. In El Salvador, around 70% of the population have no access to banking. But Bitcoin could offer Salvadorans a new way of saving and sending money in the future. Vijay Boyapati is the author of The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. They can now save in something that can't be debased. So fiat currencies like the Australian dollar and the US dollar get inflated. The governments inflate these currencies and so the, the purchasing power decreases over time. Whereas now Bitcoin provides a way for people to keep some of their savings in something that doesn't or can't get debased by design. And so I think the people of El Salvador who begin saving in Bitcoin will see their purchasing power increase over time. And another huge benefit is a lot of the capital inflow to El Salvador comes from remittances. And they're using services like Western Union, which take a huge fee, a huge cut of the, the amount of money that gets sent back to families. 30 to 50% of that money is taken away in fees, whereas now people have the ability to send that money back in an essentially a zero-fee manner to their family and, and keep most of the savings that they've, they've worked so hard for in the United States. But of course, these rewards come with risks. Most people worldwide have never made a Bitcoin transaction. So this system will require a huge amount of education to actually gain a foothold. Additionally, Bitcoin itself is a digital bearer asset, which means that if you are the holder of the asset, if you have knowledge of the private keys, effectively, you know, the password to the Bitcoin, and you lose those private keys, it's gone. If someone, you know, is able to steal that information from you, hack your wallet, or, you know, with a phishing scheme or something like that, they can commandeer your Bitcoin, right? That's kind of what you sign up for. You get the nice benefits of Bitcoin through that sort of cryptographic ownership principle, but there's also drawbacks that come with that. And so if you know many Salvadorians start using Bitcoin, they're going to be exposed to this risk of key loss and losing their assets in this sort of novel way. If you talk to almost anyone who has ever owned any Bitcoin ever... They have a story where something like this has happened to them. Vijay Boyapati is no exception. His story begins with the bet. And the prize, which Vijay actually won, was five bitcoins. <laughs> 
Vijay didn't know much about the new currency, but he was interested in maths and tech, and he thought it sounded interesting. He downloaded the software onto his computer and accepted the transaction. And he said, look, I sent you five bitcoins. And I said, great. And, and I kind of forgot, forgot about it. And I had, they weren't worth anything, really. They were, I mean, it was worth $50. And that, that laptop I gave to my ex-girlfriend. And so it was gone. And then in, in 2017, I started remembering like, oh, that laptop's got some Bitcoin on it. They're worth quite a bit now. And it was, you know, it was worth... 10,000 and then it was worth 20 and then 50 and then the laptop was worth a hundred thousand dollars at one point and so I emailed my ex-girlfriend I said do you, do you you don't happen to still have that laptop do you and she said unfortunately I lost it in a hotel in Minnesota and I was like oh bummer <laughs> and you know the thing is with Bitcoin the blockchain is open and transparent you can go and look and see those Bitcoins have never moved so in all likelihood, the laptop was destroyed, which means the private keys that control those Bitcoins are destroyed. So those Bitcoins are gone from the earth. They'll never be recreated and uh, completely destroyed. <laughs> Five Bitcoins are now worth hundreds of thousands of Australian dollars. The ability to lose such vast amounts of money so easily is clearly an obstacle when you're trying to introduce a new financial system to a population who likely struggle to remember their email password. And that's not the only uncertainty for the future. Another one would be simply that El Salvador becomes kind of a pariah state if they embrace Bitcoin and reject the sort of Washington consensus, you could say, the you know, international institutions that currently dominate, whether that's the IMF or the World Bank or the WTO. And, you know, worst case, they get blacklisted by, you know, these organizations that the U.S. controls to sort of uh, enforce, you know, their policy opinions, right? So that would be one potential risk. And already the World Bank has kind of signaled their displeasure and the IMF has basically suggested that they're less likely to work with El Salvador because of this move to embrace Bitcoin. Uh, so there are, there, are, there are downsides and there are certainly risks. Uh, those definitely exist. The other risk for El Salvador is one that hits the headlines almost every week. But first, Bitcoin. Its price jumped 20% to a new record high. So we saw Bitcoin plunge by one third overnight. The volatility is insane. Yeah, you're right on the money there. The volatility of Bitcoin's price is a huge problem because remember at the start I said that the thing about a dollarized economy is that all your debts are in dollars mm -hmm. and you don't print dollars. You have to service those debts in dollars. And so if some of, if a lot of your income is in Bitcoin and Bitcoin has this really volatile price against the dollar, then when it comes to paying your debts, if the Bitcoin's price has crashed, then you've actually got much less money, much less ability to obtain the dollars you need 
to service those debts. And so, no, I mean, Bitcoin in 2018 lost 80% of its value. If that happened now, then the Bitcoin that the government was holding or that businesses were holding or that people were holding in El Salvador would crash by 80%. And if those people or businesses or the government needed to obtain the dollars to, to, to service those debts or to repay them because they do fall due, then they simply may not be able to obtain the dollars to pay them. And that's a huge, huge risk. So why is the price of Bitcoin so volatile? Nick Carter again. Bitcoin is this pretty novel thing in that the supply is totally fixed and predetermined. And so the supply can never change in reaction to demand changes. Uh, But changes of demand occur all the time because the world is constantly trying to evaluate this asset and we don't really have good models through which to value it. Nobody has ever published a model which definitively says Bitcoin is worth X. Maybe if someone did, it would cease to be volatile, but we're still in the discovery phase. I mean, we don't know if nation states are going to adopt it. We don't know how many individuals worldwide are going to adopt it. And we don't know how many corporations are going to hold it on their balance sheet. So because there's so much uncertainty swirling around the asset and it's bathed in this sort of macroeconomic context that's changing and governments keep changing their minds on Bitcoin. These are just shocks that send the price teetering, you know, up and down. And so we've seen politicians from all over South and Central America, Africa and some Pacific islands come out in support of Bitcoin. Do you think this is the start of a domino effect? I think the Salvadoran situation is actually quite unique frankly, because first of all, it's a dollarized country of which there are relatively few. So it already doesn't have monetary discretion. So because that was not present already, there's not as much of a cost to uh, adopting a Bitcoin standard. Bitcoin is, of course, non-discretionary. No country can control the supply characteristics. Um, And then additionally, President Bukele is overwhelmingly popular. He enjoys something like a 95% approval rate, and he totally controls his local Congress. And so he was able to push through any legislation that he wanted. And so as this sort of overwhelmingly popular millennial, he's 39, uh, kind of super tech savvy um, president in a nation already without monetary discretion, It wasn't really that difficult for him to push through this Bitcoin legal tender law. But that's totally not the case in other countries. I mean, I would say it's a pretty unique circumstance. So I don't expect a wave of countries Bitcoinizing anytime soon. While it may be some time before we see other countries following in El Salvador's footsteps, there are other areas of the world also taking steps to open up to Bitcoin. The U.S. state of Wyoming has become the unlikely crypto capital of America in its attempts to diversify beyond industries like coal, oil and gas. Caitlin Long is a Wall Street veteran and founder of crypto bank Avanti. She led the charge for the regulation changes in the state. And Caitlin says that one of the biggest challenges initially was that no one really knew what Bitcoin was. And this is true... In most countries in the world, and I'm sure in Australia as well, there's a pretty good definition around money in the law. There's a pretty good definition around securities, stocks and bonds. There's a pretty good definition around commodities. 
but and real estate, of course, right? Those would be the major categories of, of property. Those are all pretty well defined. Well, to be honest, cryptocurrencies span all four of those categories. And yet they don't fit very nicely into one single category. And so the most important thing that Wyoming did is the most boring. It just gave legal definition. It, cre it, it mapped digital assets based on the type of digital asset that they are. It mapped those to existing categories of law so that parties to transactions knew exactly what their rights and obligations were. And judges in the event of a dispute had a roadmap for determining the, the outcome of the dispute. And we just very simply needed to define what digital assets were under those laws. That's all. And what's been the impact in Wyoming of defining what those digital assets are? Well, Wyoming is a relatively small state, large by by area, but uh, relatively small by population. And we are a state that is very heavily dependent on natural resources. So in some ways, not that different than the Australian economy overall. Lots of mining, lots of agriculture, lots of oil and gas in Wyoming. And uh, we need some diversification because the, the energy industry, of course, has been hit pretty hard. And so one of the things that Wyoming wants to diversify into is, of course, technology and financial services. There's not a very large financial services industry here. And so this industry, check that box. It's a niche financial services industry where we could, we could be first. Other areas of the world are taking a different tack and they're looking to launch their own digital money. So what the governments are doing is two things. One is embracing the technology through central bank digital currencies. China is going to be the first major country to issue a central bank digital currency using this technology, not Bitcoin itself, but using their own version of it. Central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs, aren't cryptocurrencies, though. This digital currency isn't decentralized. It's completely controlled by central banks. In theory, it will give central banks and governments more control over people's money and how they spend it. Also, remember how there can only ever be 21 million Bitcoin in the world? Well, that's not the same for CBDCs. Banks and governments can issue as much of it as they like, just like traditional money. Alongside China, countries around the world are looking into launching CBDCs, including here in Australia. And then another thing that governments are going to do is to allow the industry to integrate in with it through something called a stablecoin. Stablecoins are fiat currency like instruments, so like the Aussie dollar, but issued on a blockchain by a private entity. So the difference between a central bank digital currency is it's issued by the central bank itself. The, the, a stable coin is issued by a private entity. They both use very similar technology. Just to give you a, a sense of how meaningful this market is, it's now about $1.4 trillion US dollars in value. The stable coin market specifically, though, they're all private right now, is about $101 billion of that. And the largest financial technology company that's not a bank in the United States is PayPal. And PayPal has about 35 billion of customer funds. And the stablecoin industry is almost three times that already. But here's the kicker. The industry, the stablecoin industry has added more than two PayPal's worth of assets just in the last six months. 
That's how fast this has grown. And what is it that's so interesting about the technology? It's how fast it settles, how easy it's, it, it, the ease of use, and it's irreversible. Some people consider that to be a bug, not a feature. I consider that to be a feature, not a bug. It's not something that every user of the financial system is comfortable with. And so what I think is going to happen is that you're going to have a big menu of different types of payment options that are available to you. And if you need something to go through fast, you, you use one of these stablecoin or CBDC type structures or Bitcoin itself. Uh, and if, if you're okay, if it goes through slow and you can wait a day or two for the payment, then you use one of the traditional payment rails. They will all end up coexisting, I believe. And even if governments do start to regulate the space in which Bitcoin exists punitively or over-regulate or even attempt to ban Bitcoin, can they ever stop it? No, it, we're well past the point at which Bitcoin can be banned effectively. That won't stop some from trying to ban it. But Bitcoin is code, it's speech. Governments will tax it, they will regulate the entry points between their banking systems and Bitcoin. They will do all kinds of things like that, but they won't ever be able to ban it. Bitcoin may now be too big to ban, but there is growing opposition to it, and not just from governments. It's been estimated Bitcoin has a carbon footprint comparable to that of New Zealand, producing almost 37 million tonnes of CO2 annually, making Bitcoin responsible for 0.5% of total global electricity consumption. But Nick Carter says things may be changing. This enormous catalytic event just happened where China banned Bitcoin mining in the country. And that was 60 to 70% of market share for Bitcoin mining. And a huge fraction of that Chinese mining was coal-based energy. Those miners that have now left China are looking for homes all across the world. They're looking for, in particular in the US, but they're looking all over the place for stranded hydro assets, you know, all kinds of energy assets that could support them. Uh, and all the data that we have suggests that moving away from coal and moving to other sources of energy, whether it's grid energy or off-grid energy, is going to actually reduce Bitcoin's emissions factor. The Bitcoin Mining Council recently released a report stating that their members now use 56% sustainable power. They argue that this means Bitcoin mining now uses a higher mix of sustainable energy than any major country or industry. But it's important to keep in mind that the estimate was based on a three-question survey of 32% of the miners on the network. Regardless of the environmental impact of Bitcoin, Vijay Boyapati believes in the future we'll all own it. I think there's almost an inevitability to it because I think the desire for people to be able to keep the fruits of their labor, their hard work in a form of savings that can't be taken away from them is a universal desire that all humans have had through all history. And I think my experience is that when people sort of understand the value proposition of Bitcoin and why it was created, it makes sense to them especially people in countries like Argentina or Venezuela or Zimbabwe, where they've actually seen the destruction of their currency through poor economic management. 
I have a story of a friend who grew up in Argentina and he told me that when he'd go to the grocery store, there was someone who put prices on the goods in the grocery store and they'd go down the aisles and they'd do this. And when they got to the last aisle, they'd go back to the beginning and do it again. And they'd start increasing prices because the value of the money was decreasing so quickly that someone had to constantly be updating the prices. So for someone in Argentina, you explain Bitcoin to them and they instantly understand, oh, this is something where it can't be debased. It can't be inflated away by a central bank and it can't be taken. So if a government decides, you know, we want to confiscate all your savings in your bank, they can't do that. So it, it has some very powerful attributes that I think are very compelling to people who, who want to keep control of their savings. But of course, Bitcoin isn't the only cryptocurrency in operation. There are literally thousands of them. So why is Bitcoin any different? When I started my career, I started working at Google. And at the time, you know, most people probably don't remember it. There were a ton of different search engines. There was uh, InfoSeek and AltaVista and Dogpile and AskGeeves. Ask I don't know. If, yeah, yeah AskGeeves. Ask that was a good one. So, so the point I was making is that technologies that have a network effect when they have a network effect, that tends to be the most important attribute that determines whether they will succeed or not or dominate their market. And once something has established a strong network effect, it's very, very hard to unseat it. If you look at any sort of product category where a product has a network effect, where there is an advantage to using the established uh, system, it's very hard to unseat that. And in the cryptocurrency space, Bitcoin has the network effect. It's by far and away larger than all of these other cryptocurrencies. It has much more financial infrastructure built around it. It has the best and brightest computer scientists and cryptographers working on it. It has by far the strongest brand recognition. Whenever any cryptocurrency is mentioned, it's always mentioned in the context of Bitcoin. Uh, and I, I'd say one extra thing, Bitcoin has something that no other cryptocurrency has, which is the credibility of its monetary policy. So Bitcoin has a supply schedule that limits the supply to no more than 21 million Bitcoin. And that's because Bitcoin can't be controlled. It, it has this thing called, it's, it's decentralized. No single person controls it. Almost all other cryptocurrencies are much smaller and are generally controlled by a team of people I'd say 95% of them could be turned off by two or three people, just like you could turn a computer off. Bitcoin is not like that. It's a completely decentralized system with you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of computers around the world running this system. So it, it has that property that you can trust that, that that 21 million supply is real and can't be changed. And so as things progress and time goes on, what do you see as the future for Bitcoin? What's the use case in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now? I think the short term, when I think about short term use case for Bitcoin, five to 10 years, it's going from a, an early or a nascent store of value to being an established store of value. So I think over the next 10 years, Bitcoin will sort of surpass and supplant gold's use as a global store of value. Today, when uh, you know, people think of a store of value that's not controlled by governments, they think of gold. And in fact, most nation states own gold because they don't trust each other. They don't trust that you know, keeping their savings in the currency of the other country is a good idea. So they keep some of their savings in gold because they know gold has always been valuable and it's good to have something that's not controlled by another nation state. 
Once Bitcoin becomes established as a, a recognized global store of value, I think it'll go, it'll transition over a long period of time, 20 to 50 years, to becoming the, the global reserve currency. Today, the global reserve currency is the US dollar. I view the future as Bitcoin taking that role and nation states keeping some significant fraction of their nation's reserves in, in Bitcoin. And also to, you know, opening up their economies to Bitcoin and saying that you can transact and buy things with Bitcoin without being taxed on that. So you could go to the grocery store and buy bread or buy milk and, and you wouldn't have to pay, you know, a 25% tax on the gain that you have on, on your Bitcoin. But not everyone is completely convinced by Bitcoin. I think crypto is here to stay. In what form, I don't know. But historically, if you look at how these things pan out, it's very easy to focus only on what's going on in crypto and ignore what's going on in the rest of the financial system, which is enormously exciting place. There are huge developments going on there and nobody's even noticing because everybody's talking about crypto. And what's actually going to happen is they're going to come together and fuse and create something that's different. So the whole thing it becomes part of the existing system. You know, in 50 years' time, everybody will be scratching their head and saying, crypto, what's that? Because crypto will simply be just normal. Financial journalist Francis Coppola leaving us with that final thought there. I'm Edwina Stott, and this was Future Tense. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.